0: Today's reading is Isaiah 35, 1 through 10. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The word of the Lord.
1: So Isaiah's prophecy that Aaron just read there is I think one of the most beautiful poems ever. And uh, a few weeks ago, actually the last time Aaron read, uh, our own Brent Krocek said, only half jokingly, which for him is serious. He said that a way we could raise funds here at Res is we could we could produce an audio Bible with Aaron Hupp reading it, and I, I was like, you know what? I would pay good money to listen to Aaron read the Bible to me. But the good news with this, I could, we get this audio recording of this for free. It will be online later, and so we can listen to her reading Isaiah 35 whenever we want. And this is a real fitting passage this morning. Um, in the fall, we've been following the narrative lectionary, and, and so we've gone through some of the great points in the, in the Old Testament uh, narrative, and, and last week we even spent time with the prophet Amos, but today it's with uh, Isaiah. And this passage from Isaiah is really a bridge between where we've been going through the Old Testament and where we are going as we, we enter the season of Advent. And and I know not everyone, I I know some people didn't grow up in churches where they celebrated Advent, and so you have no idea what I'm talking about. And that's just the season of the church year, uh, four Sundays leading up to Christmas. And so it's the time where the church reflects on on the meaning of the coming of Christ, the light shining in the darkness. And so it's the season of preparing ourselves for um, the beauty of Christ's birth and the, the reality of the incarnation. And we take Advent, we, we, we take it seriously here. Ad, Advent um, is an important season of church life here. And it's one where we get to focus intently on the promises of God that we believe are fulfilled in Christ. And what I love about Advent is we come back to it year after year. And it focuses our attention, just like Matt's prayer this morning, on, on um, light, on the coming of light, the promise of the coming of light in what is a very dark season. And that's, it's literally a dark season, but for some of us, it's is probably a hard time of year as well. And, and I chose this passage this morning, though, it, as a bridge, but also it's, it's the theme of our annual stewardship campaign. Now, that might surprise you because there was nary a word about money in that passage this morning, and that, that's intentional because uh, stewardship is not about just money. It's not a fundraising campaign. Stewardship is an aspect of discipleship. It's living faithfully with, with all that God has, has given us in the circumstances in which he's placed us. So it's, it's just living faithfully with the resources, the gifts that God has provided for us in the circumstances in which he has placed us. That's what stewardship is. And he's placed us, admittedly, in some very difficult circumstances recently. I've used this metaphor before, but it's apt. And it's apt because this is exactly what Isaiah is about. It feels like exile. We've been in exile. And exile is a crucial yet often overlooked concept, theological concept and theme that runs throughout Scripture, especially the Old Testament. You know, if you think about the Old Testament, two EX words can kind of capture what's going on there. We've got the exodus, God's people being liberated and delivered from slavery. And with that comes kind of the formation of a people and the giving of a law. And, and, and so we love the exodus because it's about salvation. It's about freedom. But, but the, the shadow side of that is exile, is estrangement, is being far from God. And exile predominates as well. I mean, think, think about, uh, we can just run through the great stories of Scripture. Genesis 3, the fall of humankind exiled from the Garden of Eden. Israelites, their their 400-year period of slavery that predates the Exodus, you could think of that as an extended exile from the land that was promised to their ancestors. And then there's the events that Isaiah is speaking to this morning that that culminated in the year 587 B.C. And that's, if we know any Bible dates, that should be one of them that's seared in our memory, 587, because that's when the Babylonians conquer Jerusalem And they despoil and destroy the temple, and they take the best and the brightest, and they they send them off into other parts of their empire. So this is exile, literally the removal of the people from the land. And this is how important the exile is. You know, scholarly consensus is is that it was actually the exile, the Babylonian exile, in 587 that resulted in, in the collation of the materials that comprised the Old Testament. What had lived as oral tradition or had been passed around locally on scrolls had to be collected and coalesced into a canon because the people could no longer take for granted that that they were going to be able to to worship freely anymore. And so the stories that they had shared, um, the the oracles and, 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 and prophecies, they had to write these things down and collect them because they were threatened by exile. And so it was actually... The Babylonian exile that that created Judaism as we know it. And we're inheritors of that event. The, The synagogue was created by the exile. The Jewish diaspora was created by the exile. The Bible itself, in some ways, was created by the exile. And so God's people were now a scattered people, a dispersed people. A people of the word even more than a people of the land or a people of the temple. And so with the exile, with the experience of exile, came a fundamental shift in the life of God's people. And the exile itself, it it lasted for 50 years, two generations. And there were those who, when they left, thought, well, this is going to be fleeting. Of course, God is going to do something about this, and it's going to be quick. But the prophet Jeremiah made clear that, that the people of God were, when they went into exile, to pray for the peace of the city where God had sent them because they were going to be there for a long time. And their well-being was tied to the place of exile's well-being. Told them to build homes in exile. Start families in exile. To get on with life in exile. Because many of them who were going there were never going to return. And that's a hard word for a people. A people who are just like us. A people with, with a deep and universal longing for a place called home. Now, what does it mean to be in exile? It means that you're disconnected from the familiar. The usual ways of doing things, the sights, the smells, the sounds, the people that you're used to, exile is disconnection. Exile is also disorienting. You know, you, 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 you're lost, if you've ever been to a foreign city or a foreign country or moved somewhere new, it's a, it's a profoundly disorienting experience. You, you don't know the lay of the land. You, you don't know how to get directions. You don't know where the grocery store is or the, 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 the target is. You just feel completely sort of out of sorts. You're, you're disoriented when you're in exile. To be in exile is also to be displaced. Literally, you're not in the correct place. You're out of place. You're not where you belong. You don't fit in. Right? You fit out. And to be an exile is also, though, to experience a kind of death—a social death, communal death, even a spiritual death—that exile can feel like that. And this is what the Israelites went through, you know, in the period before Isaiah's prophecy. Here, what does it mean? to be an Israelite without the land of Israel? What does it mean to worship the Lord without the temple? How do you do that? How do you make sense of it? How do you sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land? One of the most movingly tragic passages in all of Scripture occurs in Psalm 137. This this just beautiful, haunting passage. It's a psalm of exile. And the, the, the words that are in it, if you ever watched the TV show Mad Men, there's one episode where this, a song inspired by this is in it. I think it's in season one. So maybe you'll, you'll, re, you'll recognize this. But it's Psalm 137 where it says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion." How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? That question just hits if you've ever been in exile, if you've ever been disconnected, disoriented, disjointed, displaced. To to think of home, to act like you're home when you're in that place, it hurts. And the story of exile, that's the biblical story of humanity apart from God. That's the story of humanity, I think, writ large, of our our, our fruitless, but our relentless pursuit for a place called home. Now, we've been through and we're going through a long season of exile. We've been scattered, we've been displaced, disconnected, disoriented, and, and, and we've been through a lot of death. Now, thank God no one from our church community directly has died from COVID or or anything else in this past year. We haven't had to have any funerals here this past year, but there's been some close calls, some very close calls. And it doesn't mean that other people in our lives who we know and love and treasure and cherish haven't passed away over the course of of this past year plus, year and a half. But there have been lots of, of little deaths, countless losses, great and small. Think about the lost holidays. The lost kind of milestone, lost rites of passage for people going through, lost routines and ritual, lost relationship, lost community, and lost time. Frederick Beekner, who's uh, still alive, a, one, a really great Christian author from um, the middle and late part of the 20th century, especially, that's when he was most prolific. And uh, Beekner, as uh, a writer, but also a uh, a minister and one of my favorite authors, and, and he wrote a book called The Longing for Home. And he's reflecting, um, you know, he's almost 70 years old, and it's a collection of some of his writings from early in his life, but, but he has this great essay at the beginning, and he, and he notes when thinking of lost time that the words time and tide share the same common root in, in the Indo- Indo-European language from which they emerged. And it makes sense when you think about it. What do what those two words have to do with each other? Tide and time. But both of them are these forces that are acting upon us, that, that, that carry us along and, and over which we exert basically no control. And it seems like they're carrying us further and further and further out to sea. And so the question is, can can the tides of time ever be reversed? Can they ever draw us closer back to home? And so the prophecy of Isaiah 35, it's spoken to a people in exile. A people living in a world of death and disease and danger. And these forces are pervasive. The way Isaiah puts it, they, they encompass everything from the natural world to their physical bodies, their emotional state It's the spiritual as well. The wilderness, it's dry. It's barren. It's full of death. The road back home, at this point, it's winding. It's dangerous. It's impassable. And their bodies and their spirits are broken, weak, and fearful. So they're homeless with no hope of ever going home. And Isaiah points them to the one Thing that can change their situation, and that's God. There's nothing that they can do to speed up the end of their exile, nothing they can do at all, but wait upon the Lord to show up and do something about it. Isaiah doesn't tell the exiles, hey, here's what you need to do. He tells them what needs to be done for them. He offers them a vision, a, a glorious promise of what God is going to do. And what God is going to do is to make a way for them to come home. And so he speaks of, of a wilderness transformed into an oasis teeming with life. And, and their bodies that are racked by disease and disability being healed and made whole— uh, their hearts that, that are full of cowardice will be made courageous. And the winding and dangerous road, it will become an eight-lane superhighway with no speed limit and no traffic. And so the picture painted by Isaiah, when we, when we see it, it's really an end of the ultimate exile. It's, it's a return to Eden, a return to the Garden of Delight a place teeming with life, a place where human beings are are, are physically and spiritually whole and live with dignity. And so what Isaiah pictures isn't just the end of a temporal exile, you know, the Babylonian exile, but, but, but an end of spiritual exile, of spiritual wandering and homelessness. What he's talking about is not just the people going back home. It's better than that. They're going back somewhere better than they left. Now, so far I've talked a lot about what it means to be in exile and almost nothing about what it means to be at home. And so let me remedy that. So Buechner writes of of the universal human longing for, for home. He says this. He says, home is a place where you feel like you belong. And in some sense, it belongs to you. So home is a place where you belong, which in some sense belongs to you, a place where you feel that all, will, all is somehow ultimately well, even when things aren't going well at any given moment. So a place where you belong that belongs to you, a place where you feel like things are going to be well, even when things are not going all that well at the moment. That's home. And Beaker, he grew up in, in the years of the Great Depression, and his father, you know, economically the family was challenged. And so he went from job to job. And because of that, they moved from house to house. There, there was no stability. And then when he was just 10 years old, his father committed suicide. He took his own life. And so when he thinks back on his childhood, he says, well, for me, what was home? And for him, home was the house of his grandparents, outside of Pittsburgh. And the way he describes it is just this magical, beautiful place. Edenic, almost. Pristine in its beauty and its, in its innocence. And it was actually a house where he, he, he didn't live there ever. He just visited. But that house was home. And so what made it home? For him, it was, one, it was its permanence. You know, he moved around a lot. He was always shuffling as his dad switched jobs. But, but for him, there was this sense that this house, where his grandparents were, this is not going anywhere. And it was not just its permanence, but its beauty. You know, it was this old house, wonderfully built, beautiful on the outside and, and, and exquisitely appointed on the inside. And the grounds were well-kept. It was kind of place where a little boy could run and play and just be himself. So it had permanence, it had beauty, but what really, what he says really made that house a home was a person. It was the presence of his grandmother, grandmother who he called Naya. And what made Naya, the person who made that house home, was that she loved him with a love unlike anyone else in his life. His mother, he says, my mother loved me. But she loved him with a love that was needy, right, that needed something from him. But his grandmother loved him with a love that, that gave, with a love that to him was grace. And so something in a home, something that makes a house a home, a true home, is something truly permanent. A beauty that never fades, and a person who will never die. And so, you know, there's a a tragedy, there's a, a melancholy when he reflects on that. Because it's gone. The place is gone. The people are gone. The time is gone. And so it fills him, he talks about, with a longing for a place where he can truly be at home. In the book of Hebrews, there's a famous passage in chapter 11. It's called the Hall of Faith. It talks about all the great Old Testament saints who lived according to the promises of God that were fulfilled in Christ And great amongst these heroes and heroines of the faith were Abraham and Sarah, who believed in in their old age, in in the promises that God made to them of land. I'm going to give you a land of progeny. Your children will be as many as the sand on the beach or the stars in the sky. A great blessing. And they believed those promises even in their old age. And even when at the end of their very long lives, all they had to show for it was a field. One son and a modest fortune for their day and age. Yet Hebrews says, people who say such things, that they believe in God, and the promises of God, in the midst of their circumstances, show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, where Abraham, you know, left his house, his kindred, his, his, his homeland, to go to a place that God promised him, if, if they were talking about that, they could have just had that opportunity to return. Instead, it says, they were longing for a better country, a better place, a a heavenly one. And so isn't our longing for home just that? Our longing for a better home, for a home that only God can provide, a a home where we can live in the everlasting beauty of Christ. And so that's what's at the heart of of the next few weeks, this, this campaign, the return campaign, our annual response campaign, is this question of how can we live now? As people who are experiencing varying degrees of exile, how can we live now as if we are already there, as if we're already home? How can we as exiles live as a people who are on our way home? And that doesn't mean I'm not talking about living like the pandemic's over. I'm not talking about that at all. Because I know it's going to be over for various people at various points. For some of us, you're like, it's now, I'm over it. But for others, that day is, is coming. Some people feel like it's a long way away. Other one of us, it, it feels so close, we can taste it. But regardless, this is not a question of, about how we get back to, you know, quote unquote normal, or get back to the, you know, status quo, ante, any of that. It's not a question of how can we go backward. It's not even a question of how can we go forward. It's a question we see here. How can we go homeward? And so for the next few weeks, folks who are part of our community, we're going to be prayerfully considering some questions. You know, how am I or how can I serve now? How can I be present? How have I been present? And how can I be more present to the people who are part of my community now? And how can I give faithfully or more faithfully, of my resources now to invest in building the kind of community that's worth going back to. Where we experience the return of Christ. Where people want to return, even if they've never been there before. And I know that seems like it doesn't make any sense, but it actually does. That people can find home in a place they've never been to before. We want to build that kind of community here And so that we can be the kind of people where it's like Isaiah says in this passage, people who shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. How can we return to to, to the practices and the postures that, that that bring something that's been sorely missing, I think, from the world for a long time? But we desperately need, the world desperately needs. And Isaiah promises, and that is joy. Isaiah says that the redeemed and ransom of the Lord will return to Zion with singing, and everlasting joy will be on their heads like a crown. And beloved in Christ, you know, the, the ransom, the redeem of the Lord, I mean, that, that, that is classic Christian atonement language. That's what Jesus has done for us. We're the redeemed of the Lord in Christ. We're the, the ransom from the power of evil in Christ. And so in returning, we, we, we can recapture something that we never should have lost, and that is our joy. Scripture says the joy of the Lord is our strength. And joy isn't happiness. It's deeper than that. right? It, it, it's harder than that, but it's more durable than that. And actually, when I said we can recapture something we lost, I honestly, I don't think we can recapture. I don't think we can capture joy. I think it's something that we can only be captured by. And that's a truth worth, worth returning to again and again in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.